Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. These two chapters today, as we look at them, are really going to be, uh, they're, they're coming on the end of chapter 8. And of course, in chapter 8, as we looked at last week, we came to this fact that the old covenant, that old Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai, has become old, obsolete. You note the last verse of chapter 8 in Hebrews, he says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And we've seen that there is an old covenant. There were limitations of the old covenant. And the fault was not with God's side of the covenant, but it was with man's side. Remember, the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. God said, you do this, and if you do this, I will do this. I will bless you. And what did the children of Israel do? They agreed to it, but then they failed. They did not live up to their part of the covenant, and so the covenant was broken. No longer in force. But God had planned for that. And there is a new covenant. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He has a more excellent ministry. Hebrews 8, 6. It's a new covenant based upon better promises. Far better. And so here's we come to chapter 9. There's going to be a comparison between these two covenants. We're going to really get kind of, a, a, kind of an overview of that old covenant and compare it to the new covenant. And we can see how much better that new covenant is. So let's begin. In chapter 9, <clears throat> Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do right now is he's going to give us a snapshot of the Old Testament um, worship, the old worship in the Old Covenant. Now, let me say one more thing before we go into this. When we talk about the Old Covenant being obsolete... We talk about it being done away in Christ. This is not something that is new. It is the message of chapter 8, but it was predicted by Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Do you remember when Jesus was at the, at the well outside of Samaria, and he was speaking to that woman in John chapter 4? I want you to note what Jesus said. If you keep your finger in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and go back to John chapter 4, Jesus makes an interesting comment, and I want to tie it into what we're looking at here. John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to this woman, and um, you know, he confronts her. He says something to, to her about her lifestyle. Um, she says, well, let me, uh, he says, go call your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And of course, her jaw drops to the ground. <laughs> you must be a prophet. Like, how on earth did you know that all about me? And she immediately turns, turns the conversation. She's um, trying to divert attention from her lifestyle to religion. So she starts talking about religion. And she talks about how, well, our fathers worshipped in this mountain in verse 20, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, there was the temple. That was the place God had prescribed to put his name there. And people were to be worshiping God in Jerusalem at the temple. Well, Jesus says there in verse 21, note what he says. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain 
nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. <gasps> what did Jesus just say? We're going we're gonna to worship God somewhere other than Jerusalem? That's where God put his name. We're supposed to be there. Uh, there can't be anything else. He goes on. He says, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus says nothing about the location. That's why we're meeting here today in Tucson, okay? You know, she says, you know, our fathers say we're supposed to worship here. And of course, the Samaritans had perverted the religion, the Old Testament, they had, you know, had become a mess. And he goes, and you say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Of course, that was what God had prescribed, but what did Jesus say? There is coming a day, and now is, when you're not going to worship here or in Jerusalem. It's not significant. Because what God is looking for is he is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, can only be a result of the new covenant. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 2, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. They were all looking at the temple. They were there in Jerusalem. And as Jesus went out and departed from the temple, his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Isn't this just amazing? Look at this beautiful building. And certainly it was a sight to behold, but what did Jesus say? Verse 2, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. What? The temple's going to be destroyed? That can't be. This is where we're supposed to worship God. In Acts chapter three, I mean, Acts chapter 6, Verses 13 and 14. Stephen, remember he was stoned after his first sermon. He didn't even get to give the invitation. It, they came to him and took him out and killed him. And what did he say? What did he say in Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14? He's talking about, it's, it says that the, these, um, the scribes and these people came and set up false witnesses. And says, what did they say of Stephen? This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Shock. Uh, this cannot be. And of course, as he speaks, then he gives his testimony, then they kill him. Same Kind of the same thing happened to Paul. He wasn't killed at that time, but in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 and 28. Paul was there in Jerusalem, and at the end of seven days, when there ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Now they assumed he had done that. He hadn't. But what was, their, what was the significance of their argument against Stephen, against Paul? Hey, they're teaching against the temple. Well, what were they teaching? 
They're teaching exactly what Jesus had said, that neither in this place nor in Jerusalem, for God is seeking, seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is the new covenant. The old has been done away. And so in chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews goes back, he says, let's look at this. Here's the Old Testament sanctuary. We look at the first 10 verses here, and he talks about the sanctuary and about the service of the priests and the significance of it. All these Jews to whom he was writing, they knew this. This is what they had grown up under. This was their whole religion. So the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, given at Mount Sinai, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. There was a whole system of worship prescribed by God centered around the tabernacle, which became the temple later on. And he describes the tabernacle in the next few verses. talks about the, the, the first part of the tabernacle where there was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, the sanctuary, and then beyond the veil, he talks about the holiest place where the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid roundabout with gold, and the contents, the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded at the tables of the tables of the covenant that God had written on and given Moses there on Mount Sinai. And of course, over at the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. Yes, they knew that. He goes on. Verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. These were the ordinances of divine service that God had prescribed. And then he talks in verse 7, he describes that day of atonement. But into the second or the holiest of all went the high priest alone by himself once every year, not without blood, which he first offered for himself and then for the heirs of the people. So here's the sanctuary and here's the service. And it's just really being kind of condensed into just a couple of verses. Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. But then note verse 8. What is the significance of all that Old Testament worship, the whole the garments of the priests, the different sacrifices, and everything that we read about in the Old Testament? And there's Le Leviticus, that whole book. The Holy Ghost, this, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So what was the significance of all of that? Well, one of the greatest points he draws out here was that there was a great veil shrouding or concealing, um, cordoning off the holiest of all. And what was the holiest of all? That was the place where God put his presence, his glory. And he says here, the Holy Ghost, by this, signifying that the way was not available for all. Only the high priest could go in once a year, only after he had first offered for his sins and then for the sins of the people, then he'd go in once a year with blood, and that was it. Verse 9 says, which was a figure. This was a type. It was a picture. It was an illustration and we all know that types, pictures, and illustrations are not the reality. It is a representation of something. So the Holy Ghost, signifying by all of this, that 
Man's access to God was restricted. He had to go through a mediator. And it was symbolic because this was a figure for the time and present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him perfect that did the service, not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And all they did, all of those rules and regulations, which stood only in meats and drinks and various or divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. So here, here's all of this, all of this pattern. And it was a picture. And in fact, it actually did not reconcile man to God. It did not take care of the sin problem. It was all a picture. It was an illustration. So therefore, those who offered the sacrifices were not rendered perfect. Those sacrifices did not cleanse their sins. Now that ought to cause a Jew, or even us today, as we think about that, well, then what was the point? Why did God have them do all of that? And really, you mean all of those sacrifices and those animals that died, and those people were not forgiven of their sins? God was not satisfied? They weren't rendered perfect? No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Because all of that was just a picture. It was a type. It was an illustration of reality. Well, so there, again, that's the Old Covenant. And we've already seen that the Old Covenant could not make men righteous in the sight of God. It was impossible. But there's a better covenant, a new covenant, and note verse 11. Now here's this contrast. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, good things that were to come, good things that were to replace the old covenant, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So here's a contrast. We've got that old system, the old covenant, the whole system of worship. And at the end of the day, it could not make man have a right standing with God. It was ineffective in washing away their sins. It could not purge their sins. Well, that ought to cause you to think, well, just a minute. So in the Old Testament, uh, I thought Abraham was a friend of God. I thought David was a man after God's own heart. But their sins weren't dealt with? How did God, how could God forgive Abraham? I mean, Abraham was a sinner. How could God forgive David? What about Samuel? What about the prophets? I thought God loved these people. Well, were their sins forgiven? Mm, nope. <gasps> Wait a second. You're, 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 well, this is where we have to understand what God is doing. The Old Testament sacrifices were a picture. 
Christ is the reality. And here, note verse 11, Christ has come and high priest. He is a high priest of a better what? A better tabernacle, a greater tabernacle. He's going to come on. He's going to talk about Christ being a better sacrifice. So here we see facts concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. There's a new sanctuary. There's a new service. And the significance and the comparative superiority of the more excellent ministry of Jesus is noted in the next verses. We're going to see how Christ and his ministry surpasses, exceeds, transcends, is far greater than that of the old covenant. Let's look at these verses. Verse 13, if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now there's a comparison made right there. The blood of bulls and goats. What was it effective in doing? What was the purpose? Well, God prescribed it. He commanded his people to do it, and they obeyed. And if they were to be accepted for worship, they had to be offering a blood sacrifice. And in fact, it does say that the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. All those rituals, the sprinkling of the blood, the ashes, the water that was mixed together and put on the people, it purified them for what? For tabernacle worship. God said, you can't come unless you have been washed or sprinkled by this water, by this blood. Now you're accepted to offer sacrifice here at the tabernacle. So what did those Old Testament sacrifices do? It made them ritually cleansed or ceremonially clean. But that was all. It didn't actually wash away their sins. It made them able to worship at the tabernacle. Otherwise, they were not fit to worship there. That was the purpose. But there's a difference with Christ's blood. What does it say? Verse 14. Remember, there's a comparison going on between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Testament sacrifice and, the, and Jesus Christ. The Old Testament blood of bulls and goats would make you able, would clean you up or whatever, make you purified to be able to offer at the tabernacle. But Christ's blood, what does it accomplish? It purges the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It does what verse 9 says the old covenant could not do. What did verse 9 say? These gifts and sacrifices which were offered could not make him that did the service perfect as per, could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. But note verse 14. The blood of Christ purges the conscience. So the blood of Christ accomplishes that which the Old Testament sacrifices could not do. Do you see one is better than the other? There's a comparison made here. And for this cause, verse 15, Jesus Christ, remember the priest made after the order of Melchizedek, he's an eternal priesthood. 
For this cause or for this purpose, he is the mediator of the new covenant. The mediator of the old covenant was Moses. The law came through Moses. God gave it to him to give to the people. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant or the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Ah, this is the verse that makes you say, oh, okay, I get it. Remember what I said about Abraham, David, prophets, were their sins forgiven? No, they weren't even paid for it because the blood of bulls and goats only made them ceremonially clean to worship at the tabernacle. They didn't take care of their sins. But Jesus Christ and his sacrifice did. Verse 15, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament or the new covenant that by means of his death, what happens? Why did he die? It says here, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. That includes all of Abraham's sins, all of David's sins, all the prophets and their sins. When were they forgiven? At the cross. At the cross. Now, in case you didn't quite understand it, go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And verse 25 and 26. Well, actually, let's start at verse 21. Because verse 20 just told us that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in the sight of God. The deeds of the law. What were the deeds of the law? Well, that was doing the whole Old Testament system of worship. Not just the Ten Commandments. It was all the law that God gave. And by doing all the law, if you kept... All the law, and yet offends in one point. If a man does that, what? He's guilty of all. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So you could, have, you could have done all the sacrifices just as they were prescribed in the Old Testament. And at the end of the day, your sins were still not forgiven. Until. Well, until what? Well, verse 21 in Romans 3 says, But now... The righteousness of God apart from the law or without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's what they were pointing to. It's this. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now catch this. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or a satisfaction through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, those two verses explain God's relationship to Old Testament saints. What did God do about their sins? Were they paid for? Not until Jesus Christ died. What did God do? He was forbearing. He waited. Okay? He looked over them, but He did not forgive them. God does not just 
let sin go. It has to be paid for. It's like a deferred payment program. Okay? So David, Abraham, God looked over their sin. And you say, well, God can't do that. Well, no, God will not look over their sin. Because right here, Jesus Christ died and his death declared God's righteousness or defended God's righteousness in looking over their sins. God looked over their sins. He counted them as being righteous for believing in him by their faith, but he did not attribute, he did not punish them for their sins. Yet they weren't punished yet, but remember, God's just, no sin can go unpunished. So what happened? He punished them in Christ. When Jesus Christ died, his blood cleansed the Old Testament saints of their sins so that God was now satisfied. Now their sins were paid for. And Christ's death, God set him forth to be a satisfaction through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that were past. How could God be righteous and look over David's sin? How could God be righteous and look over Abraham's sin? Why, was, why, why when Abraham died, was he not in hell? Maybe he was in paradise. Why? Because God had deferred that payment till Christ came. By faith, he was considered righteous, but his sins were not actually paid for until the blood of Jesus Christ was shed. And it says there, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, God's patience, God waited. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So the significance, again, of Christ's death is that his blood cleansed from sin. The Old Testament law could not cleanse them from sin. Yes, they obeyed. Those who walked by faith, those who trusted God and believed him, did what God said. And God counted their faith for righteousness, but their sins had to be dealt with. They still had to be paid for, and they were paid for in Christ's sacrificial death. That's the message here in chapter 9, verse 15. For this cause, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption or the payment of all those transgressions that were under the old covenant, those whom God called might be the recipients of the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, let's move on. Let's keep going. So the new, the new covenant cleanses the conscience, which the old covenant could not do. The new covenant, we find redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. The old testament sacrificial system didn't cleanse those sins, could not render the person that offered, could not render them perfect, could not purge your conscience. And then also the, the new covenant allows those who are called to receive the covenant blessing of eternal life or eternal inheritance. Now, let's go on. Verses 16 through 19, he talks about the covenant. He says, for where a, a testament or a covenant is, remember, testament and covenant are the same word. It's interpreted both ways. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Now those verses are kind of complex, but let me remind you of what they mean. Where there is a divine covenant, this new covenant, 
the object of which is of this of this covenant is a communication of divine benefits to fallen man. And where that is the case, it says there must be of necessity the death of the testator or the death of that which ratifies the, co the, the covenant. There must be a sacrificial victim. For a covenant is of force after men are dead. A covenant is confirmed when the sacrificial victims have been slain. Otherwise, it is of no force while that which ratifies it liveth. Now, that is, it's kind of complex, and I'm going to simplify it for you. It was necessary that Jesus Christ should die so that he might be the mediator of this new covenant. We see that in verse 15. It was necessary. In this divine covenant, it was necessary that the sacrificial victim should die in order to ratify or to establish or to enact the covenant and bring divine blessing upon fallen men. Well, is that kind of weird? You say, well, you know, today we just shake hands on it, right? We make an agreement, we shake hands, and it's done. Not so in the Old Testament. Every covenant, like this covenant where Christ is the mediator, has always been ratified by the death of a victim. The enjoyment of God's covenant blessings upon fallen man has to be ratified by the death of a sacrificial victim. Now, remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sinned. And what did God do? He clothed them with what? Skins. Where do you think he got the skins? An animal died. Now, he does, it's, an, it's alluding to that. I'm going to use that as kind of like the first introduction there. Adam and Eve, there they were standing before God. Were they clothed? Yes. In fig leaves or whatever plant they could find. But that, wasn't, that was not good enough. They could not stand before God dressed in that. And so what did God do? He clothed them with skins. And he made a promise about the seed of the woman that would be ultimately triumphant over the serpent. And he gave them skins. Now, God's covenant with Noah. Remember the Noahic covenant? Rainbow? When God made the covenant with Noah, it was ratified by sacrifice. Genesis 8, 20-22. God's covenant with Abraham, confirmed by the death of a sacrifice. Genesis 15, 8-18. And here, the writer is talking about this covenant, and he says in verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, because when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant or the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. The covenant was ratified by a sacrifice. Abrahamic covenant, ratified by the sacrifice of a victim. The Noahic covenant, ratified by a sacrifice. And so here, a testament is of force over men after the death of that which ratifies the covenant. Who ratified the covenant? The new covenant is Jesus Christ. And his sacrificial death ratified the new covenant. Look what it says. We're going on here. When Moses, this is Moses, he's talking about that 
covenant when he came down from Sinai. It was a conditional covenant. They agreed to it. And then as a sacrifice, and he sprinkles the people. In verse 21, moreover, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no what? Remission. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You put it in the context of the covenant, there is no ratifying of the covenant without the shedding of blood. The old covenant was ratified there with the sacrifice of bulls and goats. But the new covenant was ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, why all of that? Note what is said. Let's look here. Let's note here. The fact that every covenant like this covenant where Christ is the mediator has always been by the death of victims. The enjoyment of God's covenant blessings upon fallen men has always been ratified, enacted, or secured by the death of the sacrificial victim. And so here in verse 23, we're going to go on. It says, It was necessary, or it was therefore necessary, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. We note there the significant word is patterns. All of this, again, the Old Covenant was a pattern. It was a type. It wasn't the reality. It was a picture. And yet it was ratified by the blood of a sacrificial victim. In the earthly tabernacle, the earthly was all done by animal sacrifices. But he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Who is the better sacrifice? Again, that's Jesus Christ. And he describes this. Again, we're contrasting the old with the new. Verse 24, down through verse 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, which are just a type, just a picture. But he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often. Again, look at the contrast. He didn't offer himself often. It was just once. He died on the cross one time. But look at the Old Testament sacrifices. How often were they offered? There were sacrifices that were done daily. The atonement, the day of atonement, every single year, again and again. But Christ, no. He should not have offered himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For if he were to offer himself often, or if it was required that he would offer himself like those Old Testament sacrifices, he said then he would have been what? For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. He'd have to have been sacrificed after Adam and Eve sinned, then Cain sinned, and then every sin, on, on, on throughout history. But no, that's not the way God had it planned. But now, once... In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once. Christ's sacrifice was done one time, and it was sufficient to do what? To put away sin. 
to answer the demands of God's justice and to purchase for us forgiveness, God's satisfaction, the purification of the conscience, rendering that which rendered the, the, the person, the worshiper, perfection or justification in the sight of God. That was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his one sacrifice. Verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So there it is. We see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Again, chapter 9 is going back through and looking at some of the details of the Old Testament sacrificial system, noting its shortcomings and showing the purpose for which Christ died and how that Christ's transaction there on the cross covered the sins of the Old Covenant and the sins that had not yet been committed going forward, our sins. His sacrifice was once for all. One sacrifice, His blood accomplished that which all of the Old Testament sacrifices could not accomplish. And he continues in verse 10, I mean, chapter 10, hammering away at this. This is so important. He says, look, for the law was a shadow. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers there into perfect. Again, he puts out there, look at the inability of the old covenant to solve the sin problem. Couldn't do it. It was just a shadow. It was a picture of the good that was to come, that which would accomplish forgiveness. Verse 2, he says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Listen, if those sacrifices had been good, good enough, then they would have quit offering them. Because the worshipers, what? Well, they would have had no more conscience of sin. They would have had their consciences purged. But they didn't. Because every year they offered those sacrifices, and in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every single year. You're a sinner. Back again this year. Oh, yeah, we're sinners. We need atonement. Back again the next year. Here it is again. Oh, when will this end? You can see him looking forward to what? To Christ, the Messiah, the one who would solve man's problem, the one who could redeem man into fellowship with God. Because the Old Testament sacrifices were not capable of doing that. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. There it is. It all boils down to that statement, and that is a very direct statement. It would have, an unbelieving Jew would have heard that and said, what? And it just shocked them. It is not possible? What do, you, what do you mean? It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And an unbelieving Jew would have said, well, if that's true, then why are we doing it? Okay. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He is explaining to these Jewish believers, listen, don't go back. Don't put yourself back under that old covenant because it is gone. It has been replaced 
by the new. The old covenant is, is imperfect. It's not without fault. It cannot render you righteous in the sight of God. Well, and when he comes to 10.4, he comes to that conclusive statement. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And at least you like, then what? Well, that's the next verse. Wherefore, when he, and that is speaking of Jesus Christ, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast had no pleasure. What? No pleasure? Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And there he is quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. David prophesied this. David wrote these words. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ coming into the world and saying, I have come. Why did he come? He came in the likeness of sinful man. He came and took upon himself a human form, a human body. For what purpose? He took upon himself a human body so that God could punish sin in human flesh. And so Jesus says, when I come into the world, it's not animal sacrifices that you want, but you have prepared for me a body, and I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 8, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, or, you know, he says, then, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, the first covenant, that he may establish the new, or the second covenant. That's his purpose. Now, when you look at that verse, when you look at verse 8, and it says above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. You think, well, God didn't have any pleasure in the Old Testament sacrifices? What do you ask? Why do you ask for them? I thought we read in the Old Testament to sacrifice or go in the smoke going up as a, a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. He would smell it. And, and you know, it, wasn't God pleased with that? The pleasure that he's talking about is the satisfaction for the payment of sins. And that no animal sacrifice could do. What was God pleased with when they offered those sacrifices? He was pleased with their faith. For their faith was evidenced in their obedience to his law. But it didn't forgive their sins. It didn't pay for their sins. If Jesus Christ had never come and died for sins, those Old Testament saints would still be dead. And they would not have had their sins paid for. But in God's plan, what did they do? They offered those sacrifices. Their faith was pleasing to God, but the sacrifice was just a temporary picture. What was their faith in? Was their faith that the blood of the bulls and the goats was cleansing their sins? No, their faith was that God was going to send a Messiah. And that's what they were looking for. Now, here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, show the insufficiency of the animal sacrifice. Verses 5 through 10 show the plan of God through Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ came. When did he come? In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, In the fullness of the time, God sent forth. When it was just at the right time 
in God's plan. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the laws. Jesus Christ came at God's appointed time. And so here, verse 10 said, By the which will or by the will of God we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Go on and look at the comparison that he gives here now in verse 11. And every priest, speaking of the human priests under the old covenant, every priest standing daily ministering, standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices over and over, which can never take away sins. That's the old covenant. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever or for all time, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Keep reading. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Let me say that again. For by one offering, the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross, he hath what? He hath perfected. Remember what it said in 9.9? Those animal sacrifices could not render the worshiper perfect. It's pertaining to the conscience. But Christ, in his one sacrifice, he hath perfected forever whom? Those, those, what does it say? It says, them that are sanctified. Who are sanctified? What does it mean? Sanctified means set apart. Which is whom? It's those people in... Verse 15 of chapter 9, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Those who are sanctified are those whom God has called, as it talks about in Romans chapter 8, from before the foundation of the world. That's who. So for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified those whom god chose from the beginning of time, uh, from before the beginning of time the sacrifice of jesus christ has made them complete there's nothing left for us to do to reconcile ourselves to god we can't work to merit that favor no we are declared righteous by god because of our faith in jesus christ whose sacrifice was acceptable Payment for our sins. One offering he has perfected forever. You cannot unperfect your standing before God. Those whom God has declared righteous, that's justification, being declared righteous by God. And the only way that we could be be declared righteous by God is that our sins had to be paid for. Bulls and goats couldn't do it. But Christ's blood was effective in accomplishing that for those who are sanctified, from those who God has called. Now, he ties it back into what he said back in chapter 8, where the Holy Ghost also is a witness for us, for after that he had said this before in Jeremiah chapter 31, and he quotes from Jeremiah, this is what? This is the covenant, or the new covenant, that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And as he said over in chapter 8, I will be their God, they'll be my people. But he says here, 
and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That is the key feature of the new covenant. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And look at the conclusion of the matter in verse 18. Well, now where remission of these is, that word means forgiveness, where forgiveness of what is? Sins. Therefore, it says, now where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. When God has forgiven a man of his sin, there is no need to keep offering sacrifices. As Jesus said there on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It was Jesus Christ offered once for all. And where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Folks, there's nothing you can offer to God for your sins. Nothing. They have been paid for. Completely paid for. You say, what what, what about the sins I haven't done yet? Well, all the sins you've done weren't done yet when Jesus Christ died. But all of your sins are paid for. Therefore, your standing before God as just and righteous cannot be changed. That's why it's called eternal life. You cannot lose it. Where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The old covenant is done. Jesus is the minister of the new covenant based on better promises and also entirely unconditional. There's nothing in that covenant that is dependent upon us because if there were any part of that covenant that were dependent upon us, the covenant would fail. Because men always fail. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not fail. And his blood was accepted by God as payment for all of our sins. Now, when you truly realize that, and I'm not talking about when you hear the words, but when that really hits you, when you really think and meditate on that, how ought you to live? How ought every one of us to live? Shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, I'm free to do what I want because I'm in. I squeaked in the door and that doesn't matter how I live. Folks, that is not the attitude of anyone who has been redeemed. That is the attitude of a person who has no understanding of the sacrifice of Christ, who doesn't even know what salvation is. They may be able to talk a good story, but they don't know anything. They don't know Christ. That's an unbeliever. Paul said this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Not possible not possible. When we realize what God has done for us, what do we do? Our response is one of of thanksgiving, of willingly offering ourselves as a what? A living sacrifice. 
Why did Paul say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is what? It's only reasonable. It is your reasonable service. Why? Because of what he's done. The new covenant. If it weren't for the new covenant, we would be dead in trespasses and sins. But what has he done? He's quickened us. He's made us alive in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing the new covenant is. And remember this too. The new covenant wasn't a plan that God concocted after he saw that the first one wasn't going to work. No. God planned this from before the foundation of the world. And last week we talked about that. We talked about the purpose of the law. The law was never a standard by which man could judge his own righteousness to make amends with God. No, it was there to show men that he was sinful. It was added to show men that he was exceeding sinful. And it was a schoolmaster to drive him to what? To the only solution, Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the old covenant. And so again, take you back to the theme of Hebrews. Be faithful to the faith. Don't depart from the faith. You Jews who have received Christ, I know you're under pressure, you're under persecution, and your countrymen want you to get back into their system of worship. But look, it's ineffective. It's been replaced. Don't go back under the law. There's no more offerings for sin. Any offering that is offered now is is totally ineffective. It doesn't do anything. In fact, it detracts from the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So as we continue here, Note these themes. Note these important points that Hebrews is bringing out. Don't forget them. This is important stuff, okay? But it's a good explanation of what God is doing, what he has done. And it helps us to understand our salvation and the wisdom of God in his plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the redemption that we have in Christ Lord, we marvel at your wisdom as we see your plan unfolding even through the old covenant and that covenant given to show the shortcomings of man and his need for a savior and a new covenant of which Jesus Christ is the minister. Lord, we thank you so much for the salvation that you have provided through Jesus Christ and now the We who have placed our faith in him stand before you justified, righteous, because of Jesus Christ. And for this we give thanks in his name. Amen.